0: The question for our topic today is: Are true people, or can people be truly bad? Yes. Yes. Manson. Yes. Well, let's let's have a vote over here because I see every, a lot of people have opinions. Maybe Who thinks people can be truly bad? Are you talking about becoming <laughs> bad? No, become truly bad. Becoming Who thinks? Up, oh truly oh bad. yeah. Okay. Who thinks? Okay. This seems to be close to unanimous. Who thinks people cannot be truly bad? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in 1970, an in 1970, Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter, published a book called *The Sunflower*. The Sunflower. It's a great book. In 1943, at the height of World War II and the Holocaust, uh, Simon Wiesenthal was part of a group of forced laborers in the Lemberg concentration camp that were sent to an army hospital to clear medical waste. While he was there working, he was summoned by a nurse to the bedside of a dying Nazi soldier called Karl Siedel. And the soldier told Wiesenthal that he was looking for a Jew to forgive him for a crime that he had committed one year earlier. And Sito told Wiesenthal how he had, as a child, joined Hitler Youth and then joined the SS. And about a year pre- prior to this event, he participated in, the, in destroying um, a synagogue that was burning a synagogue that was filled with 300 Jews. And they locked the synagogue and they burned it. And as the Jews tried to jump out of the, burning, jump out of the windows of the burning building, he and other soldiers, other SS men, shot any Jew who tried to escape. Now, after finishing this story, Carl Seidel asked Wiesenthal, Simon Wiesenthal, to forgive him. Simon Wiesenthal says he left the room without saying anything and did not forgive the nuts. The next day, the nurse that had originally called him came to him to tell him that the soldier had died of his wounds. Now, Simon Wiesenthal, in his book The Sun Thou, describes this story and asked 53 thinkers of all sorts of different religious, theological, philosophical backgrounds what he should have done, whether he should have forgiven the (coughs) Nazis. And the rest of the book are essays from each of these different thinkers and writers uh, and their responses as to whether or not he should have forgiven the Nazis. But but today, my goal is not going to be to answer that question of the Book of the Sunflower um, as to whether we can or should forgive the Nazis, That's also a subject of its own class. Um, But rather, I want to ask a different question. What made a cruel Nazi SS man, who was guilty of the murder of 300 Jews, at least, (laughs) what made him ask for forgiveness as he was dying? Do you think he was genuinely remorseful for what he did? No, I think he was afraid of what was to come. Was but he might be afraid been. of what was to come. He was afraid, he believed in God, and he thought that he would be punished for what he did. Would that Or he believed in something be... in an afterlife that there was an effect and that he could be absolved from that horror that was to come. But does that he mean God he regretted himself? what he did? He genuinely regretted what he did? So he knew what he did was bad. He knew what he did was bad. Did he regret hey, what he did? Maybe he didn't regret it, but he knew Not it was bad. bad. I, that That's was the important bad. thing. No, it's hard Good. to know the veracity. No, of I think that there's such a thing as such brainwashing that the person actually, for a time, loses sense of right and wrong. But perhaps they knew it before. They were brainwashed and them. did Carl Siedel now, as he was dying, know the difference? What he had done was wrong. Before, no. Clearly he thought that if he believed in God or believed in an afterlife, he thought that God thought it was wrong um, and he would have to pay for it. So clearly he did have a sense of right and wrong and um, to at least some extent he, would have, he had nothing to gain at this point from expressing regret and asking forgiveness um, other than genuinely regretting what he had done. Maybe due to fear of future punishment, but um, that's, that, that would still be regret. Yes, Stephen, let's say this that our real selves are our souls. But in this world, I will get to the philosophy in just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> <Never mind>. So, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm running <laughs> his why, this presentation. I Sorry? Why, I know why he did that. Why? Because if he was a Christian, you know how they say all you have to do is ask the, the J man for forgiveness and your sins? He well, he didn't just do that, he called in a Jew. To ask a Jew for forgiveness, oh. he called in Seaman Wiesenthal. He had a nurse call a Jewish inmate and ask a Jew for forgiveness. I think I think people have their core are very, very good, but you get caught up in the moment and and you just do foolish things. Okay. Was yes, Stephen. I'm well, gonna move I on. I had applied for police reserve once, and then like the preliminary psychological thing, and said. The question was, do you think people are basically good or basically bad or something like that? And I thought, well, they've got to be basically good because otherwise the police would never be able to enforce laws either because they'd be corrupt. And, you know, if you're dealing with everyone's corrupt, you, 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 you'd, you'd never have any society. I it is true that the, people are corrupt in some places. but I don't know if I passed that answer. It depends on where you are. Some places everybody is corrupt. It does depend on where you are. But let's get back to Carl Seidel. So Carl Seidel, presumably he felt remorse and regret for what he had done, um, whether it was due to a sense of true right and wrong um, or a sense of um, suffering in the next world, but definitely believed that in objective truth what he had done was wrong and God would not accept it. Um, and he, to the point that he felt that he needed to ask a Jew for forgiveness. Was Karl Siedel an exception? Did other Nazis feel, feel remorse as well? So we know that some people, there are people who have done terrible things, causing great harm to others, even to very large numbers of people. Sometimes, very often, the bad they do is irreparable. There is nothing they can do to make up for the bad that they did. But the question is not, is the bad they did repairable? Often it is not. But is the perpetrator irreparable? Are they capable of doing any good? Are they capable of having a sense of right and wrong? And this is not a question of forgiveness, which is a subject for a different class, as to whether people who feel genuine remorse after committing terrible crimes should be forgiven or punished, or perhaps both. But rather, this is a question of can somebody who did bad, terrible things, will someone who did bad likely feel remorse for what they did? Or are people who do horrible things beyond any sense of goodness and beyond the ability to recognize right from wrong? Now, there is a similar question that goes the other way as well. Are good people capable of doing terrible things. Often we have a tendency when we hear about someone who did something horrible, we tend to dehumanize them. This is common in um, the media and news reports. Uh, They'll often call the individual a monster, an animal, Um, but is it true? (laughs) Are people who do bad things any worse deep down than each of us? Could each of us do horrible things if we find ourselves in the wrong time, wrong place, and a situation that tempts us? So it's really two sides to a very similar question. Can bad people who are doing lots of bad, are they able to do good as well? Can good people who do lots of good, capable of doing bad as well? But I know you all have views on this, but I'm going to go further um, because I've heard some, we heard some of your views already, and um, I'm going to share our Jewish perspective. So these questions get really to a more general philosophical question that some of you have already raised, and Steve just raised it. Are people essentially good, in other words, we're born naturally good, but due to negative influences around us, we end up doing bad. One option. Are people essentially bad, but thanks to good influences around them, they're able to do good? Or are people just neutral, where they're born without a tendency towards good or bad, and they can get pulled in either direction? So... To save time and save a debate, um, we'll just do a quick vote. Who thinks that people are essentially good, born good at their core, but then become bad due to bad influences? Who thinks people are essentially bad, born bad at their core, but then can do good thanks to good influences? I roll the Catholics. How could you be born bad? Who thinks. We had discussed in Kabbalah class (coughs) that (laughs) people (laughs) are born essentially with good and evil. Who thinks people are just neutral? Neither good nor bad. Okay. And who thinks all three answers are incorrect? So the soul is, but the part is very different, right? So as Sandy's pointing out correctly, and as Kim just pointed out, Torah actually teaches that neither answer is correct. Um, people are not just essentially good with negative influences, not essentially bad with good influences and not neutral, but rather everybody is born with two sides, what we call in- um, Judaism: a Yetzer Tov, a good inclination, and a Yetzer Hara, an evil inclination. The concept of these two inclinations was already mentioned in the Torah, in the very first, in the very first parsha in the Torah, Bereshit, that we just read yesterday. Um, God speaks to Cain and tells him that he has an evil inclination and that he has the ability to overcome that evil inclination as well. So we believe every person has two inclinations, a good side and a bad side. Kabbalah teaches and the book of Tanya teaches that on a deeper level we actually have two different souls. We're actually a split personality. But on the most basic level, every person has a good inclination and an evil inclination which means that we really have are both essentially good, thanks to a good inclination that is always pushing us to do good, as well as at the same time we're essentially bad. We have an evil inclination that is essentially pushing us to do bad. Now this tells us a lot about people who do either good or bad. People who do good have a bad inclination. People who do bad have a good inclination. So as a rule, everybody can do good and everybody can do bad. And this works both ways. (laughs) The Talmud actually tells us that there is a possibility of people who destroy one inclination or another. In other words, what the Talmud calls either a tzadik gamor, a completely righteous individual, or a rasha gamur, a completely wicked individual. It is possible for a person to go so far in one direction to totally destroy their evil inclination or totally destroy their positive inclination. However, we're told that that is extremely, extremely rare. The Talmud tells us very, very few people have no good to them whatsoever. By extension, we're also told that very few people have no bad to them whatsoever. It's extremely, extremely rare. Rather, what happens is we both have the ability, we all, almost all have the ability to do both good and bad. Now, the good news is that the more good we do, the stronger our good inclination gets. The weaker our bad inclination gets, but it doesn't disappear. The more bad we do, the stronger our bad inclination gets, and the weaker our good inclination gets. But it doesn't disappear. In fact... We're told further Jewish philosophers and Kabbalah tells us that a person is not really able to naturally themselves destroy their bad inclination from doing so much good or destroy their good inclination from doing too much bad. The only one who has that power is God and Maimonides tells us that sometimes someone does so much bad, God punishes them in taking away any ability to do good. And an example that God did that to is Pharaoh. In the Torah, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hardened Pharaoh's heart, meaning took away, although even the worst people generally have the ability to still do good, God gave Pharaoh a unique punishment where he no longer had the ability to do good. And the same is also the opposite. Some people get a unique, who do lots of good, get a unique reward, that, such as King David, that God takes away from them the ability to do any bad. David, after he had done some things wrong, asked God, begged God to <coughs> take away his evil inclination. The Talmud says that indeed, um, God gave him that gift later in life. But for almost all people, with those few exceptions, Any person, starting with can everyone be bad, any person can do bad, just about. Nobody is immune. So we all then have an evil inclination. (coughs) We're all tempted to do bad things. Thankfully, most of us, most of the time, control ourselves. And this is two things. Firstly, we are smart to avoid putting ourselves in tempting situations. Avoid putting ourselves in places and situations where we will be tempted to do the wrong thing. And we all do that. We do that for ourselves do <coughs> that for our children. Put ourselves in better situations where we should not be tempted to do the wrong thing. And then when we are in a situation where we have a temptation to do the wrong thing, <laughs> we hopefully um, learn to control ourselves and always control ourselves and do what is right rather than doing what is wrong. However, if we lower our guard, or if we end up in a very, very difficult situation, and don't have very, very strong fortitude and self-control, we can end up following our evil inclination just like anybody else. The Mishnah tells us, Al ta'amin ba'atzmecha ad mosach. Do not trust yourself until the day you die. Because the Talmud tells us stories of people who said, I can never do anything wrong. And sure enough, when they came to the situation they were never expecting, they made the wrong decision. They did terrible things. So never trust yourself until the day you die. Everybody must always be on guard and careful not to do the wrong thing. Carol, did you want to ask something? Yeah. If you have a situation where you could do something good... That's a very good question. Is there a neutral, or is everything either good or bad? In the truest sense, there's no neutral. But good and bad is not all equal. In other words, there's... Wasting time is a bad thing, because you've wasted time that's never going to come back. It's bad, but it's not bad on the same level as causing harm. So, yes, it's true there's no neutral, but... um, Let's focus, for this class, on visible good and visible bad. Yes, Sandy? So, I brought up before the idea of brainwashing. So, children from a very, very young age taught to dehumanize Jews or taught to whatever it is they're taught, that there is no, um, no humanity That's a very good question. I'm going to get to that. Okay. So, everybody, for now, even good people, ourselves, all, we're all good people, hopefully, um, are all capable of doing bad. And now, often, because somebody with a very strong, does a lot of good, has a very strong good inclination and a weaker bad inclination, so the bad inclination cannot make you do something terrible straight away because you will control yourself. But what the Talmud tells us is that evil inclination tempts you slowly. The words of the Talmud, Hayom, omer lo asekach, lemachar omer lo asekach. Today it tells you to do something very small. And then the next day it tells you to do something bigger. And the next day it tells you to do something bigger, what we call in English the slippery slope. <laughs> so it's very important to hold your red lines very, very high up. Because when you start doing something very small, it leads to something else, which leads to something else. And many people who did very bad things will tell you that they started very, very slowly. The first things they did were very minor. And then, gradually, they started moving down that slippery slope. So we must always be careful every good person can do bad. We must always be on guard, both to make sure we don't put ourselves in tempting situations, to make sure also that (laughs) we always control ourselves, we have self-control, and remember that it sometimes starts very, very slowly, um, with very, very small things. Now that's for people that are good, that are tempted to do bad. But the Torah teaches us that the reverse is also true. Almost everyone who does bad, with some very few exceptions, has a good side to them. That is why the Talmud tells us, Rasha'im Malayim charatot. Bad people are full of regrets. Bad, just as good people struggle with temptation to do bad. So too, and all people do, one should never, the Tanya tells us, one should never feel um, dejected or upset at themselves because they have a temptation to do something bad, because temptation is normal. Everybody is tempted to do something bad. It's how we respond to temptation. But the reverse is also true. People doing bad things, people doing very bad things, also struggle with their own evil. They also struggle with the fact that they're doing bad. And they, have to, they, they are having a hard time as well. And this, that is why we find something very interesting throughout society. And we see this again and again. Bad people, people doing terrible things, often at the same time will do unexpected good things. You may recall six years ago in 2013, when I read this story at the time, it stuck with me because it brought out this concept. There was a former policeman called Christopher Dorner. who went on an anti-cop rampage. This was here in Los Angeles. And he killed the daughter of his his police lawyer, his name was Monica Quan, and her fiancé, Keith Lawrence, but then he shot two police in Riverside, killing Michael Crane. Later, he killed a San Bernardino detective and Jeremiah McKay. He was on a rampage, killing police for no reason. Crazy person, we like to say. It, right? Well, he had a manifesto. I he had a that. manifesto. Most of these manifestos are pretty nutty. Yeah. They're, at least for most of us. <laughs> so, But he was caught, eventually, up in after a Days-long manhunt that you probably remember uh, been involved in an event here in Torrance. Um, he was caught after there was a couple, James and Karen Reynolds, walked into their home in Big Bear, and they found him there in the home where he had apparently been hiding out for a couple of days. When he saw them, he they thought that he was going to kill them, but he said he does not want to hurt them. They're good people who never did anything wrong. And he's a good person and he would never hurt them. (coughs) And so rather, he tied them up using zip ties at gunpoint. And then he drove off. They quickly untied themselves. They called the police who managed to find him minutes later. What stopped this cold-blooded murderer from harming a couple who would almost certainly give him away and did? So ultimately, we don't know what goes on inside these people's heads. Um, He ended up dying, so we will never know. There are um, psychologists who spend their time studying criminology and what goes on inside criminals' heads. But what we do know is that time and again, people, as they do terrible things tend to also have moments of goodness as well. Which points to what we believe is a struggle. Just as good people struggle with bad temptations, people doing bad struggle with remorse and struggle with good feelings. And so we believe that, yes, what God created after the flood, before the flood, people didn't have this sense of good, or they had the ability to destroy their sense of goodness. People were able to become bad with no remorse. However, today, after the flood, God changed human nature to the point where people can do bad only to a certain extent. Any person can do bad, but only to a certain extent. Even as people are doing bad, they still feel regret. They still feel remorse and they struggle with the bad they are doing. If we go back to our earlier question about Carl Seidel, was Carl Seidel a Nazi who, at the end of his life, after being involved in the murder of 300 Jews, cruel murder of 300 Jews, um, felt regret and remorse to the point that he needed to call a Jew to his bedside before he died? He actually left all of his... Uh, what, before he died, he left all of his belongings to um, Simon, Simon Wiesenthal, who was an uh, inmate, a prisoner. Um, but uh, he didn't take any of it. But, um, but he did. Um, but it actually appears that Carl Sado was not unique. It was actually a lot more common than you would think. There were a number of SS, most famously uh, the um, one of the top SS officers was Otto, um, Scor- Otto Scorzini, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And Otto Scorzini um, was, one of, uh, was a personal guard to Hitler. He was involved in saving Mussolini after, the, uh, after he was deposed in Italy. And um, he went on after the war, and after serving a prison sentence, and being denazified, as they called it in Germany then, he went on to work for the Mossad for many, many years. Um, and the same was true of other Nazis as well. Um, who went on, Now, why they did it, we ultimately don't know. But what we do know is that many others, and not all, but many struggled with their actions throughout their lifetime. In the late 1990s, the United Kingdom declassified most of its World War II secret files, more than 50 years after the war. And among the many secret files historians went through, um, we discovered that, um, that Britain had managed to crack German radio codes early on in the war and continued to do so pretty much throughout the war. And they had transcripts of just about every single German military radio communication throughout the war which taught us a lot, reading through these transcripts and historians have, we learned a lot that we didn't know about for 50 years. Um, we learned that the British, and presumably by extension, the United States, knew the full gory detail of the Holocaust from the very, very beginning. Every single action, every single ra- uh, rounding up of Jews, every single get- ghetto creation, um, every killing, had all been reported uh, on German military or, um, or police radios, and um, all decoded and sitting there in British archives. So they definitely, the governments knew everything, every single detail, down to the smallest details from the very beginning. We also learned a lot of very interesting details about how the Holocaust was carried out that was previously unknown. One thing that we discovered was the reason why the Germans pushed to build gas chambers for mass <coughs> murder in late 1941. We know that in 1941, um, there was a, mid-1941, there was a meeting in um, Germany where the leaders of, the Nazi leaders made the decision, uh, what became known as the final solution, although it appears that that decision was actually taken er- much earlier, um, to to um, exterminate all the Jews of Europe. Um, on June 22, 1941, Germany attacked the Soviet Union. Alongside the troops, as they marched into the Soviet Union, and they marched pretty quickly at the beginning, were groups called SS um, Eisensgruppen, whose job it was to every place where that Germans captured, to come in right behind them, round up the Jews of each city and each town, and kill them. And they did this by making Jews dig their own graves and shooting them. The largest, most famous such killing was at Babiyar in Kiev, where more than 30,000 Jews were killed in two days on September 29 and 30 in 1941. However, strangely, toward the end, in the fall of 1941, the killings of Jews dramatically slowed. Uh, The Germans started creating... Um, ghettos and concentration camps throughout what had been the Soviet Union and started experimenting with killing Jews with gas, first gas trucks and later gas chambers building extermination camps historians didn't know for certain why the Germans made this change um, in their method from um, what they had started off, um, killing um, with shootings to the gas they didn't know. It was widely thought that the choice was for the sake of efficiency. The Germans were highly efficient. However, today we know that it was actually much more expensive to transport people across the continent, and um, takes up railway cars and lines, and it's, it's very, um, very inefficient and very expensive. We rather know that there was. we discovered from these transcripts there was another reason why, totally different reason, why the Nazis changed their method of killing. What happened was um, Heinrich Himmler discovered very early on that the Nazi SS, these were trained brainwashed killers who had been trained already, this is for eight years, since 1933, many of them having grown up as kids or teenagers under um, Nazi... Um, rule and Nazi brainwashing um, and these were, the, these were the most ruthless of all who ended up in the SS and who were chosen to kill um, we know that Himmler very early on was extremely worried about the problem of SS breaking down, they were losing men at way too fast a number and it was happening way too quickly and we have lots of reports, that, transcripts of reports where they report the men breaking down they tried bribing them with all sort, they tried all sorts of different techniques, whether it was alcohol or drugs and drugs um, and all sorts of other things they tried to try to get them to, um, uh, they tried to get them to continue doing it, and nothing seemed to work. The SS men were breaking down from doing this, which led them to a much more um, less gruesome and less um, people-intense method. Um, that allowed them to, uh, that unfortunately they used um, throughout the rest of the Holocaust. But it tells us, well, an interesting history of the Holocaust. It also tells us something very interesting about these brainwashed C.S.S. men. They struggled with killing people. For many of them, by no means all, but for many of them, it was extremely difficult. Difficult to the point they were having nervous breakdowns. Difficult to the point they had very, very high suicide rates among these Isaacson Gruppen, they were people, these people, these hardened killers, were struggling with killing. So, in conclusion, what we now know is that while there are some people that can be bad um, to the point where God takes away their ability to do good or their ability to even feel remorse or regret, Generally, by and large, people, even as they do the worst things, feel some remorse and regret, and struggle with the bad they do, just as good people, just about every good person, no matter how good they've been through their lifetime, will also struggle with temptations to do bad, to harm others, to do things wrong. And this is something um, that, is, that God has created in humans, that we both have a good side, And the bad side, the good side gets stronger and stronger the more we use it. The bad side gets stronger and stronger the more we use it. But it almost never disappears. The other side almost never disappears. Now this teaches us some very important lessons. It firstly teaches us that we must know that we are capable of doing the worst things if we let down our guard. Every person is capable of doing the worst things. Uh, Sometimes you hear about the good guys, we should let the good guys um, have the ability to, uh, we should let the good guys be in control, not the bad people. Um, Ultimately, everybody has the ability to be a bad person. Um, It's all a matter of people's own self-control. But it also teaches us something else. It teaches us that there is hope for anyone and for everyone. The Rebbe taught us to never give up on anyone. Israel Singer, Israel Singer was a secretary general of the World Jewish Congress for many, many, many years. The 1970s capa- 70s, in that capacity, he went to the Soviet went to visit the Soviet Union. And over there, a um, another Jew that he knew introduced him to Lazar Kaganovich. Now, Lazar Kaganovich has the distinction of probably being the greatest Jewish mass murderer in history. Lazar, the greatest Jewish mass murderer in history, Lazar Kaganovich was Stalin's was a uh, avid communist and Stalin's right hand man for many years. He was responsible, he was appointed by Stalin um, to put down um, unrest in Ukraine and was the architect behind what became known as the Ukraine famine in the 1930s that killed millions of people. In the 1920s, he built the Moscow subway with slave labor. He managed to survive all of um, Stalin's purges due to his great loyalty. In fact, when his own brother-in-law came to him, knowing that he was um, on Stalin's hit list another prominent communist who was on Stalin's hit Hitler's during one of the purges and asked him to intervene and asked Stalin to help he said that his loyalty his first loyalty is to Stalin but at, as his brother-in-law if he likes he could give him a gun that he could shoot himself so uh, anyway Israel Singer met Lezer Kaganovich And whenever he would travel to the Soviet Union, because the Rebbe led a large underground organization in the Soviet Union, he would come to debrief the Rebbe of the the activities and things that people that he met there. And in one of his audiences with the Rebbe, he mentioned that he had met Lazar Kaganovich. So the Rebbe noted, having grown up in the Soviet Union, noted how bad a person Kaganovich was. But he told Israel Singer that everybody can do teshuva. Even laser Kaganovich, and he said, "Next time you go to Moscow, I would like you to go back to him and tell him that that he can change his ways. It's not too late. And if he would publicly regret his wrongdoings, it would make a very big impact." He did that. He did go back to Kaganovich. Kaganovich says he has nothing to regret, um, and he did die um, without regretting anything. However, other people can change. And it is up to us to make sure that um, people do change. Um, The Rebbe, often when people um, are often accused of anti-Semitism, it is true today, Uh, there are people, uh, prominent people in this country that have been accused of anti-Semitism, saying things that are anti-Semitic and the like. The Rebbe would always say, if some, unless somebody claims that they are an anti-Semite, unless someone's openly anti-Semitic, in other words, they say, I'm an anti-Semite, if they say, oh, I'm not anti-Semitic, I didn't mean to say something anti-Semitic, rather than saying, no, you did, you are an anti-Semite, the Rebbe's approach was, take them at their word. Say, okay, if you are not an anti-Semite, then state so, Publicly and show us actions of your care and love for the Jewish people. And so rather than, if people claim to at least pay lip service to the right thing, rather than saying, no, you are terrible, no, you are a Nazi, they say, I'm not a Nazi, rather than saying, yes, you are, better say, show us that you're not. Why don't you help the Jewish community? Why don't you do more for the Jewish community? Why don't you support Israel? And try to encourage them to express exactly what they're trying to say. Now it may be that they are anti-Semitic and they likely are. But everybody has a positive side. Just about everybody has a positive side to them. And we can unleash that positive side rather than putting them in a corner by (coughs) giving them the opportunity to unleash that. One interesting example um, today... Bernie Madoff, uh, <coughs> one of those people who probably started very, very small and then gradually his inclination got the better of him, um, is today serving 150 years in prison, in federal prison, North Carolina, for a $65 billion scam that also led to the deaths of many people. Um, but over there, he's, he's going to be there. He's in his 70s, so he's going to be there. Um, but over there, he volunteered to teach inmates for their high school diploma and college credits. Now, we don't know what his intentions are, but we have no reason to believe that they are a sinister. Um, likely, he has a good side to him also, wants to do good as well. We should never give up on anyone, no matter who, no matter what they have done. It doesn't mean that we forgive them or we do not punish them, but it does mean that everybody has the ability to do good, And we should, rather than um, reject people, and rather than cutting people out, even people who have done bad, we should always encourage them to do good. Particularly if they say they'd like to be good and they'd like to do good, we should, rather than cutting them off and rejecting them, our approach as Jews should always be to recognize that good side. Encourage them to express their goodness, and to do more good. And as a result, we believe that we can bring out the good side in people. At the same time, remember everybody has a bad side. Don't trust yourself, let alone anybody else, until the day that you die. So um, I should mention, having spoken about truly evil people, um, today is one year, at least on a secular date, from um, the greatest anti-Semitic attack here in the United States um, in Pittsburgh last year. And uh, we remember those 11, uh, the yard sites coming up in a couple weeks um, on the Jewish date. And um, I I told someone that I would mention that here in the class. Um, But we believe that anybody, even the worst, can do do good, and we should work towards that. Uh, We're actually going to be having a speaker coming up in a week from... Thursday, on November 7th, Frank Mink, who I actually met um, two days ago over the weekend, um, very fascinating individual who um, was a skinhead and Nazi, and um, then left that and actually started an organization. He later discovered that he was Jewish, Um, (laughs) he is Jewish. Um, and, but he left that and he started an organization with some other people in similar situation whose goal is to help people who are Nazis or white supremacists to help them back to society and to overcome their hatreds and um, so he, and, uh, and he is a real example of even people who have done terrible things are able to change and able to bring out the good side of them so I encourage you all to come next week on Thursday you'll get to meet him in person you can buy his book and hear more about his story and what he does um, also I should mention that next Wednesday um, on November 6th we're going to be starting a new course um, called yes. Warrior to Warrior, where um, how a, you can overcome your worries and other life struggles, the Jewish keys to overcoming life struggles, everybody has those struggles and um, definitely makes your battle with your evil inclination a lot easier if you can overcome your personal struggles and so um, we 're going to talk about um, Jewish teachings have a lot of very, very practical um, solutions and ways to approaches to be able to overcome those struggles. So that's going to start next Wednesday. If you sign up um, this week before by Tuesday this week, there's a discount. So I encourage you to do so. Once again,